All right, friends, we continue our series on God's big picture, tracing the storyline of the Bible. And before we jump into uh, these texts from Genesis, uh, let me just review for you why, why, do we, why are we doing this Bible overview? Uh, my normal aim for preaching in the years to come is to just go through books. Now, there may be a topical series here or there, but typically, I just want to preach through books of the Bible. And, um, but before we start doing that, I, I wanted to lay a foundation and get us all on the same page. Those, those of us who know the Bible well and those of us who are new to the Bible all need to be on the same page together. And so uh, I thought this would be a helpful thing to do this fall. It's a view from 30,000 feet, so we're flying through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, even as I was preparing for this morning, I thought, oh, there's so much here. It's so good. It's so rich. I'm sorry, we're just flying. We're, we need to fly through it. And we're tracing uh, a particular thread through the Bible uh, that is a huge theme in Scripture, and that is the kingdom of God. Um, so, as I said, this will be a review for some and new for others, but we're all getting on the same page. And so I want to remind you that the Bible is the story of Jesus. It's all about him. He said so. Um, we just finished this section uh, in the story called The Fall, where things now look horrible and hopeless after Adam and Eve have rebelled. Uh, the shalom, the peace, the, the, the fullness, the, the, the wholeness that God had created for Adam and Eve in the garden has been shattered by sin. But even in that part of the story, Genesis 3 through 11, we saw some glimmers of hope that God has a plan, and he does. Paul helps us remember this in chapter 1. Look at this. Um, God's plan, he says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. What's that plan? To unite all things in him, in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. God still has a plan. He has a will. He has a purpose. Uh, none of this escapes uh, his notice or is outside of his plan. His plan is to unite all things in Christ, to get us from creation to new creation through the incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. He says in Colossians 1, he, he describes that plan this way. He says, for in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things. He said before, to unite all things, now, he's saying it this way, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace through the blood of his cross. So, I'm trying to remind you that even though we're in a little section of this entire story, uh, there's a lot uh, that God is doing. There is still a plan, even though uh, we just came out of a dark part of the story. Um, Last week, we paused the story at the end of Genesis 11 with the story of the Tower of Babel. 
And we saw that from Genesis 3 all the way through 11, sin and the corruption of the me-first heart had spread. It started with individuals, Adam and Eve. It spread to relationships. We saw Cain and Abel, and on and on. The relationships were corrupted by sin. It just got worse and worse and worse. And then we saw that even in the building of this city, um, of the Tower of Babel, that sin had corrupted every social structure that exists, um, and we have seen evidence of that even on the news this week. Um, the kingdom that was supposed to be God's people in God's place, under God's rule and enjoying God's blessing, was perished. It was gone. Um, and so now, no one is God's people. They've been banished from God's place. They're disobedient to his rule, and therefore under his curse. That's where we left off last week, with a bit of happy news. Um, but God does not ever, has not abandoned his plan to have a God-centered community who will join him on his mission to multiply and magnify, magnify his glory, his greatness, his goodness, and his grace through all, throughout all creation forever. Um, Dr. Michael Williams said it this way, the people of the Tower of Babel sought to build God out of the world by building their nation. God, however, in Genesis, starting in Genesis 12, will build a nation that will represent him in the world. So that's where we're headed today. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you again. I, I thank you every week for for giving us your word, for putting it in writing uh, over thousands of years and through uh, dozens of different authors and voices, this story um, that you have told and that you're telling and that you've invited us to participate in. Thank you for preserving your word so that we could together unpack it and uh, understand it and then think about what does it mean to live with you uh, you as our God and we as your people to dwell with you in this story you're writing. Uh, would you help us now in this short time we have together this morning in this part of the story, help us to understand and not just understand in our heads but to be moved in our hearts by the truth of what we learned this morning. Help us to see Jesus, we ask in his name. Amen. Um, we are promise-driven people. Um, we will pursue whatever or whomever we believe provides us the greatest promise. Um, we're promise-driven people. My, my friend T.M. Moore explains, gives a few examples. He says, our choice of a life partner, for example, we choose the person we choose to marry because we hope... Um, for the promise of maximum happiness in marriage. Lucas chose Sarah because he hopes for the promise. He got engaged. Did you know this? <laughs> Lucas and Sarah. And Sarah said yes because they, they're both hoping for the promise of maximum happy, happiness in marriage, right? 
I hope so. <laughs> you better. Um, our pursuit of college degrees and careers. We, we pursue those things because we hope for the promise of greater satisfaction and, and reward in our lives. He goes on to say that our purchases, the way we use our time, the relationships and friendships we enter, the hobbies we pursue, the entertainments we enjoy, those are all driven by our hope for what those things promise us. Perhaps whatever version of the good life we're hoping to gain through all these choices we make. So it seems that the, the degree of happiness and fulfillment we experience is directly to proportion, proportional to the degree that the realities of our lives match up to the promises we believed we would realize when we pursued those things. And when uh, the reality doesn't meet the dream, we're disappointed and sometimes we despair. So we choose to do those things and involve in ourselves in those relationships that will offer us the greatest promise, whatever we believe that promise is. That's why the people in Genesis 11 built a city and a tower, because they wanted to make a name for themselves. They did not want to be scattered. They were aiming for the promise of caring community and meaningful mission. And that's what drove them to build a ziggurat out in the plains of Shinar. You do you, they say. But I think what I want us to think about is what promises drive us? Why do we do what we do? Why do you pursue certain relationships over others? We talked in, this morning in our class on James. Why do we show favoritism to some groups and disdain to others? What, what is it that those activities and relationships promise us that we're pursuing? And then as you think about that, I, I wonder, how's that working out for you? Are, are those things and those people keeping the promises that, uh, that they offered? And even if they seem to be keeping the promise that you hoped they would fulfill, will it last? Are they enough? And are they the right promises to pursue? Let me ask you this, can the promises you're pursuing or I'm pursuing do this? 2 Peter 1, chapter 3 and 4, Peter says, His, God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. So that through them, the promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. God offers to us precious and very great promises. Exceedingly great is what it means. Promises. So that through those promises, we can partake of the divine nature. We can participate 
in the life and the community of the Trinity. That sounds like a better promise. Um, in, your, in your bulletin, I put this quote at the bottom of the sermon notes from TM. He says, We are concentrating on the wrong promises. As long as our primary focus is on, is on the promises of work, home, wealth, relationships, or diversion, we consign ourselves to a life of defeat and disillusionment as Christians. We must learn instead to put the activities of our daily lives and all the promise that they hold into the perspective of God's covenant and the exceedingly great and precious promises he holds out for us there. Only then will our joy and peace be informed by God's word and not the works of our hands. And only then will we know the kind of purpose and power for living that is able to take us beyond ourselves into new realms of spiritual experience as the servants of the living God. You see, like Abraham... We're called into a covenant relationship with God, into his community and his mission, in which we live by faith in his precious and very great promises. And that's what we want to think about this morning as we fly over Abraham's life a little bit. Um, look, the entire Bible is about promise and fulfillment. The Old Testament is promise. The New Testament is about the fulfillment of the promise, the promise that we're going to talk about this morning. All that we're discovering in the Old Testament over these next few weeks is pointing to the New Testament. Augustine said, the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. So for now, we're in this part of, the God, of God's story that Vaughn Roberts is calling uh, the promised kingdom. And so, let's kind of take this apart as we trace this theme. God's people. Um, God said to Abram in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, uh, by the way, uh, those three verses, John Stott said that Genesis 12, 1 through 3, the rest of the Bible unpacks those three verses. Think about that. First of all, God promised, I will make of you a great nation. So God is still on his plan to have a people uh, of his own, a community with him. We saw in Genesis 17, um, he says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring. To you and your offspring, I'm giving this everlasting covenant. So it it's a people that God is putting together. And then the refrain that is repeated throughout the Old Testament, and I've only given you three examples there, but it, as you read through the Old Testament, look for this phrase, I will be your God and you will be my people. God says that over and over and over again. And then we're going to see how he says it again at the very end of the story in Revelation. Um, so God's people are Abraham's descendants. And God dealt uh, with people. People sinned, and they were under the judgment of God. But my question is, how can God have a relationship with sinful people who have rebelled against him and are rightfully under his judgment? The answer is his grace. 
If God is to have a people, he has to make it possible because they're not going to do it. So by his own initiative, God reaches out to sinners and makes relationship with them, with, with himself, possible for sinners. And so in Genesis 15, that Annie so aptly read, here's what we find. The word of the Lord came to Abram, and he said, no, I'm not going to let this servant of yours be your heir. I promised that I would make great nation out of you. Your own son will be your heir, no matter how old you are. Now, look at the stars. If you can count them, then you'll be able to count the number of descendants I give you. Abraham believed, Abram believed what God said. He believed God's word, and God counted it to him as righteousness. And then God assured him again, I am the Lord who brought you out of earth. I'm the one initiating this relationship with you. Uh, Abram was, the Bible says there's nothing special about him. All we know about him is that he came from a land that worshipped idols. He came from an idol-worshipping family. God just picked him out of all those pagans. Um, now, we also saw in Genesis uh, 15 this odd ceremony that uh, God and Abram per participated in with the cutting of animals in half and, and all that stuff. What is that about? Well, they were doing what's called cutting a covenant. So I need to take a minute and tell you, covenant is such a critical word, uh, you, you really you can't understand the story unless you understand this concept of covenant. And yes, we Presbyterians are covenant this, our college is named covenant, our seminary is named covenant, we've got churches called Christ covenant, it's covenant everywhere. So if you've ever wondered, what is a covenant? You came to the right place on the right day. Let me... Uh, let me share with you, and also note a little disclaimer here. If you're new to us, this series is a little different than how I typically will do things. It, it, it's a little more on the teaching side and using PowerPoint and all this stuff. Um, it's because it, it just kind of lends itself to that a little bit. But my hope and my prayer, and you can pray this for me, is that, uh, is that whenever I preach, I teach, and then whenever I teach, I preach. So I want you to, I want you to uh, learn, but I also want that learning to turn into love for God and love for people. So bear with me as I'm teaching a little bit here because you've got to understand some of these things in order to get the story. Uh, Dr. Mark Futado says this about explaining what a covenant is. He said, in the world of the Bible, the ancient Near East, Covenants were made to bind parties in relationship to each other. Typically, one party was superior, the great king, and the other was subordinate, the servant. Both parties enjoyed benefits and assumed responsibilities. For example, the great king enjoyed the benefit of goods and services the servant was bound to provide. The main benefit for the servant was the military protection of the great king. Uh, that the great king pledged to provide. In God's covenant relationship with us, God is the great king, and we are his servants. 
And so what's happening in the ceremony in Genesis 15, 8 through 21, is this is the cutting of a covenant. In fact, the word covenant means to cut. And so Abram asked God, so how am I going to know that you're going to give me descendants that outnumber the stars? Bring, some am- an- bring these animals, he lists them off, cut them in pieces and lay them apart. And then a deep sleep fell on Abram. And uh, God said, know this for certain. Your offspring will be afflicted for 400 years, and then they'll come back to this land. Er, wait a minute. That's great news. Thanks. Uh, so these offspring you're promising me are going to be slaves and in bondage for 400 years. Just kind of note that in your head. God's promises are great and incredible and wonderful, But that doesn't mean life is always going to be great and incredible and wonderful for God's people. Just a note. And so then, through the pieces of the animals, a smoking fire pot and a torch pass. Uh, They represent God. And in doing this, God cut a covenant with Abram. Now, the interesting thing is that typically when the great king and the servant cut a covenant together, they would both walk through the pieces as if to say, if I don't keep my end of this covenant agreement, may it be done to me what has been done to these animals. May I be torn asunder. May my blood be shed because I have not kept my part of the covenant. In this case, Abram didn't walk. God put him to sleep. And God himself was the only one who passed through the pieces. As if to say to Abram, whether I break this, which I'm not, or you and your descendants break this, I will be the one who pays the price. And we know that Jesus was torn in pieces and shed his blood because of this very promise that God made to this very man and his descendants. More about that in a little bit. So, a covenant. Here's here's the best short definition I could find. A covenant is a loving, living life bond established by God. It's loving because it's motivated by God's love for sinners. It's living because it involves commitments with life and death consequences. As, as I just said, if I don't keep my end of the covenant, I die. Uh, blood is shed to cut the covenant. It's a life bond. God promises and commits himself with an oath, a promise, a pledge that is represented by a physical sign. In this case, it's going to be circumcision. And I'll talk more about all the covenants and their signs later in this series. But. And then it's established by God. This is not a mutual contract, as I just described. This is a unilateral, one-way covenant that God initiates. It is completely dependent on God, and it is eternal. Um, Hebrews 6 talks about this. He says, uh, The author of Hebrews says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one 
since God had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. What the author of Hebrews is saying is that because God did that with Abraham, we have something to hold on to. It's not dependent on Abraham or his descendants. So that's God's people. That's how God deals with his people. God's place in this case is the land, God said, that I will show you. It's the land of Canaan. Um, That was the land, and it had specific boundaries back then. Uh, But there is a day coming when the promised land, the land promised to God's people, is a place where he will dwell with them forever, and it will extend beyond the boundaries of Canaan to include the entire universe. Revelation 21, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So God's place begins in that little patch of land in the Middle East. But the promise is that one day it'll all be the place where we dwell with God. And then God's rule and blessing. God rules by his word, um, we've said. But those who, uh, the, the word bless comes from a Hebrew word that, that has something to do with the knees. And, and my friend TM thinks that when God says, I will bless you to Abram, he's, he's saying that to be blessed is to be in a relationship with God in which I, the one being blessed, am on my knees before him in submission to him and dependence on him. So to be under God's rule is to enjoy his blessing, and that's what he promised Abram. He says, I will bless you. You will be a blessing. I'm going to bless those who bless you, and all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through you. And so what God is promising Abram and his descendants is that they will be a blessed community with a mission to bless others. They will be blessed by God in order to bless others. Uh, it reminded me of this famous quote from William Temple when he said, the church is the only society that exists for the benefit of those who are not its members. God has blessed us, called us into this blessed relationship with him not only so that we kind of hold on to it and enjoy it ourselves, but for the sake of blessing others and inviting them into this story. You know, we Presbyterians like to talk a lot about election, but we were elected, we were chosen not to be frozen, but to be overflowing with blessing 
to the people in the places where God puts us. And so, the blessing now of salvation replaces the curse of the fall. And so rather than sin corrupting individuals and relationships and all societal structures, now grace changes individuals. Grace changes relationships. Grace changes every structure that it touches and infects with its happy virus. So, here's a summary of this part of the story. God's people are Abraham's descendants. God's place, the promised land. God's rule and blessing is that God will bless Israel and Israel will be a blessing to the nation. So, you're wondering, what does that have to do with me today in this week? What does this have to do with us? Are these promises for us? Yes, they are. We read Galatians 3 earlier. Paul says, does he who supplies the Spirit to you, the church, and works miracles among you, the church, does he do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So how do we join the Spirit in what he's up to now? We do this. We hear God's promise in the gospel, which is the good news about Jesus, who was torn to pieces and shed his blood to guarantee God's promise to keep us in covenant relationship with himself. As we hear God's promise with faith, that is, we don't just listen to it and hear the gospel, but we, but we hear all this stuff that's being said this morning, and we say, yes, that's, that's mine. I, I stake my life on this truth. We hear it with faith. Um, and then God supplies the Spirit, the promised Spirit of God, to work in us to be the people of God. Because we are the descendants of Abram. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Did you catch that little part there? that the gospel was preached to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Remember I told you earlier that John Stott said Genesis 12 through 3, the whole Bible, the rest of the Bible unpacks those verses? It's because Paul called that the gospel. The good news that God was going to gather a people uh, by his grace through his sacrifice of his son to make this covenant stick forever. And those who are of faith, that's you and me, those of us who are trusting the gospel of Jesus that we have, so much clearer than what Abraham had. We are blessed along with him, Abraham, because those who are of faith are Abraham's sons. So, almost done. Uh, Mark Furtado helps kind of pull all this together for us. 
He says, as the great king, God has taken upon himself the responsibility to do everything necessary for our deliverance, our salvation. It was necessary for, the God, for God the Son to live a perfect life of righteousness in our place, die on the cross for our sins, and be raised for our justification. We enjoy all the benefits of this salvation. The great king calls us, justifies us, adopts us, makes us holy, and will at last, at the end, make us perfectly glorious. As God's servants, we have covenant responsibilities to our great king. Fundamentally, we're responsible to trust in the great king for our deliverance and to obey his commands out of love and gratitude for his salvation. Do you hear that? Our responsibility is not to do everything perfectly and to create our own righteousness. Our responsibility is to receive by faith, by trust, the righteousness of Jesus given to us as a gift. And then, out of that, to love God and to love others as we trust Him. And then the great King enjoys the benefit of gaining glory to Himself through our service. Friends, uh, Paul said in 2 Corinthians, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Um, all the promises of God, those promises that were given to Abram, um, that God would redeem for himself a people who would dwell with him, who would be his people, and he would be their God, and that they would be on mission together to be a light to the nations um, and to their neighbors and to the next generation so that they would know the grace of God. Um, it comes through Jesus. And this is why we celebrate him at this supper every week. We rehearse the story and we enjoy the supper because they keep our hearts and minds focused on the promise that Christ is for us, that outstrips everything else that promises us uh, life and happiness in our lives. So let me pray for us and then I'll explain. It's the fifth Sunday, so we do things a little differently around here. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Some of this is a, a little tougher to chew on um, in, in some of these sections, but thank you for giving us the, the patience and the willingness to kind of walk through it together. Um, thank you that we have these great and precious promises that are all yes in Christ Jesus so that we uh, can be driven by your grace and not by our own uh, sense of uh, self-effort. We're driven by the promise that you hold out to us, that you love us, that you're with us, that we're your people, and that you've put your spirit in us so that we can live as your people when we go to work, when we go to school, when we play, when we suffer. The promise is true because Christ has come. And so we celebrate him and we 
uh, feed on him by faith in this meal together. We ask that you would take this bread and this cup and set them aside from their normal everyday use and let them be for us a sign and a seal of that promise that you have made to us through Christ that you will not let us go. Your covenant is forever. Oh God, would you stir our hearts to hang on to that truth, to hold, hold on to and hope in that promise above all other promises we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.